0: truth and love. he's our rescuer, he's our rescuer, we are free from sin forevermore. Oh how sweet the sound, oh how
2: praise the we will praise the Lord, our rescuer. True sure reading this morning is from the book of Ruth. Uh. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. One day, Ruth's mother in law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now, Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, There is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, No one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, Bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did did so... He poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. The word of God for us, the people of God.
1: Thanks be to God. Thank you, Nate. So the last... uh, No worries. Just lay it down. Uh, So the last couple of days, y'all, I've been... um, Since Wednesday, I've been in Hampton, Virginia. The United Methodist um, pastors gather every year for, like, a big convention of pastors. And this year, I think some of you might have known um, that... I um, I could have applied for ordination and I didn't apply for ordination. So this year it was like every single person that I knew and loved was being ordained and I wasn't. <laughs> it's a good feeling, right? Um, I I just I didn't I didn't put in my paper, so you know it's n- no that it was me, right? Um, but I was there and just so much celebrating. So I'm running on like an hour and fifteen minutes of sleep, um, which is not an excuse because this sermon's gonna be. <laughs> <laughs> so while um, let me. Let me kind of bring you up to speed on what's happening in Ruth right now. So uh, in the story of Ruth, you have Ruth and Naomi. For those of you who haven't been with us um, since week one, you have Ruth and Naomi. Naomi is from Judah. Um, Earlier on in the story, Naomi and Elimelech, her husband, relocated to a place called Moab because there was a famine in the land of Judah, which among the Israelites, God's people were in um, desolation and famine, and so they move to Mo- to Moab, and they have some sons, and their sons marry Moabite wives, and they, become- they set up this life in this foreign land, and then famine sets in in their land, and famine sets in, and it takes the hard labor to get through famine. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies. Both of their sons die, and who's left is Naomi, a widowed middle-aged woman and her two younger daughter-in-laws, who are Moabite women, Naomi hears that Judah now is not in famine anymore. So she knows that if they're gonna survive as women who do not have men to support them anymore, that they must go back to Judah. But she also knows that the Moabite wives will not be accepted in Judah. They're foreigners. And to be honest, Israel Israel's had this weird relationship with foreigners. God's never told them not to befriend foreigners, and yet when they, you know, had kings that ruled corruptly, or when they've gone into famine, they began to make up this story in their head that it's because of their dealings with foreigners. And so they know that if if these if her daughters-in-law go back to this country, they will surely be um, raped. I mean, they're, they're, they will they will be in danger. Um, They will not be supported and they will not have anybody to marry in that land um, because they will be considered um, kind of like harlots when they arrive. And so she knows, she tells them, please stay, please stay in Moab as much as there's famine and it's shortage here. You're going to have more of a chance to live here than you will back in Judah. And Ruth says, no, I want to go with you. And so Ruth is younger and is taking care of her mother-in-law, Naomi, and she does this by going out to the threshing floor, the harvest fields, and after all the harvest has been taken up, going behind and picking up the scraps. So what, um, what Alyssa was talking about this, this morning, if you've ever, there's a society of St. Andrews where there's churches that gather and glean the leftovers of a field to deliver to, to communities um, that do not have access to fresh Fruits and vegetables. Uh, so she's doing this. She is gleaning in the field afterwards, and this is where we find ourselves with this relationship with Boaz. So uh, a few months back, I had I had coffee with a dear mentor of mine, and he's asking me how my life is and what's ministry like. And uh, I mean, he's 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 my pastoral mentor, and I tell him some of my struggles in ministry, and he says, "Have I have I ever told you?" my biggest challenge my biggest hurdle in ministry so he starts to share with me he said um, after he graduated from duke he decided to move to england to be a pastor in the british methodist church and it was only about 15 years ago um, that he first applied to be a pastor of this very small housing project a a church in a housing project in norwich england Norwich is a city of about 130,000 people, about um, 100 miles northeast of London. Norwich was England's second city in the 17th century when the wealth of the wool trade brought it pretty much a church for every week of the year and also a pub for every day of the year. That's Norwich. She, he, he shared that the church where he Um, was seeking to become the pastor was quite different, though. Its membership hovered around only 25 people, and the neighborhood in in which it served was the most materially disadvantaged in the east of England. He was excited to meet the bishop and request this new church, and he finds out really quickly that no one else had applied for this job. With disarming frankness, the bishop kind of says, Why? Why in the world does a Methodist who graduated from Duke at the top of his class want to come to a job like this with 25 people in a degrading church in the worst area of Nourish? And he said, because I want to see Jesus and I want to discover the kingdom of God. You see, as a child, he actually lived in England at one point in time during a relocation with his family and he grew up in the church there at a time when being radical was actually pretty easy. Margaret Thatcher was embarking on a series of austerity measures that reduced investment in welfare in the community and public services. This is about the late 80s. There were riots across cities in England, and the Church of England produced a report called Faith in the City, which was critical of the government's neglect of the urban poor in England. And then there was Prime Minister Thatcher, who defined the era by making the most notorious remark. There is no such thing as a society, she said. You could think yourself radical just by being against Prime Minister Thatcher. But by the time he moved to Norwich, 15 years later, there was this new government in place, a new philosophy, And in the late 90s, early 2000s, Tony Blair announced that 17 socially disadvantaged areas throughout England would be identified and that he would give $55 million if local residents would organize themselves in a board or a committee to run their own revitalization, regeneration of all of these 17 areas. It turns out the neighborhood surrounding this small church in Norwich was identified as one of these 17. And so he found himself taking on a new unpaid additional job of like a community organizer now and and helping to lead a mass democratic regeneration movement for the next five years of his ministry. And he eventually was a part of forming the first development trust in the eastern region and set about doing some community Um, surveys and elections and generally kind of poking his fingers and everything for for five years. And this was the moment when he felt overwhelmed by the biggest theological challenge of his ministry. He said, imagine you're you're faced with a significant level of deprivation, of social deprivation, perhaps something like 1,900 children being ripped away from their parents on a border. or or gun violence ravishing a a Chicago neighborhood, or just sheer poverty outside of a church in Norwich, England. Imagine yourself faced with that kind of societal deprivation, and you have pretty much all the money you could dream of to do something about it. You can't blame the government because they've given you all the help you could ask for. What do you do? Put another way, um, here is an underclass neighborhood Norwich. It's widely seen across the area as a dangerous place that is a drain on more comfortable suburbs and hard-working taxpayers and productive businesses. What would redemption look like for this kind of community? What would salvation look like here? Should you strive to make it look like one of the affluent suburbs? Is it distinctive only for what it's not? Or is there an elixir of, of life at the heart of a neighborhood around which can cluster a whole host of initiatives and green shoots of regeneration in and of itself? He struggled with that question all through those years, and it's stuck with him ever since. And he went to live in the neighborhood and he got involved in the regeneration process because he wanted to be with people in their sorrows and in their struggles. And he wanted to find beauty and abundance where, where some might only see shame and scarcity. But then he had to allow his imagination to be stretched to a vision of what it might mean for this community to genuinely flourish, to be happy, to be settled, and at peace with itself and not look like the community he grew up in. When the Old Testament talks about redemption or regeneration or restoration and social hope, um, redemption and salvation tend to crop up in two ways. One way favored by uh, Zechariah is to yearn for some kind of political restoration, to put King David back on the throne and to have Israel king among the nations again to seek justice through political restoration. In scripture, Zechariah says, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the, the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken and he will proclaim peace to the nations and his rule will extend from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners From the waterless pit, return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your sons, O Zion. I will make you a warrior sword. The other way is portrayed in the book of Daniel it's to imagine a dramatic, apocalyptic intervention of God when there is no social hope. So Daniel says something like, At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people will arise and there will be a time of distress in the land such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until now, but at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered, but some will not be. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Daniel says. So you can call the first way, Zechariah's way, earth. And the second way, heaven. Zechariah's way appealed to the activist spirit. Do We have an activist in the room. The main drawback is that it was so much about Israel taking its destiny into its own hands that it didn't leave much room for faith in God to do anything. Daniel's way, though, was all about God's action, but so much so that it encouraged a passive resignation from from the people. Little has changed, right? Those who talk about salvation and redemption today seem to be those who either assume it comes from us and we're going to wage the war on Capitol Hill, or those who assume it comes all from God, so we might as well Stay on our backside and just wait until, da- until Daddy God rescues us eventually. And, and, and that's the context that explains why the story of Ruth is so significant, so compelling. It's about God's action. It talks about God's favor and redemption. So it's obviously about the dramatic and decisive inve- intervention of God into our lives. But its details are about foreigners' well-being and people migrating and people growing crops and harvests and, and, and companionship and having to take care of widows and being orphaned. Things as practical and as real and as mundane for our world as a local county commissioner's electoral forum for my mentor. What's breathtaking about the picture offered in Ruth 2 and 3 is that it's poised between heaven and earth, poised between God's action and human action, poised between hope and pragmatism, poised between astonished wonder and hard realism, which I find that we are stuck between most of the time. Ruth combines the vision of God and humanity with each playing its role in what redemption and salvation mean. And this story seems to point to three dimensions of salvation that we don't hear talked about very often. Three answers um, to my, my mentor's question about Norrish, his question about what does it make sense for us to hope for? What do we do with money and a problem? The first, Ruth mentions... Health and well-being. You always have to remember that in the Bible, salvation and health are most of the time the same thing. Salvation means safety and and permanent relationship with God. A- ask anyone um, with a, a, a terminal illness, ask anyone battling cancer about, about salvation, and it's like they understand it on a level that the rest of us don't, I, I, I think. You, you want to be saved of your your ailing body, you want to be saved. And, and, and you're, if you're honest, you really, really would like your soul saving or your spirit saving to, to be revealed in your body being saved, even if you know God maybe doesn't work that way and the two just seem so connected to one another. And then the second dimension in Ruth is security, that when you settle in a land, that you are welcome to stay in it and to live in it and, and you can plant crops in it and you can enjoy the fruit of your labor in it. Over 2,500 years before Karl Marx, Ruth offers a manifesto for an alternative to slavery and indentured labor and oppressive social structures. Ruth points to the possibility of a flourishing community where those who have plenty rid themselves of their plenty so that those who have few might know what abundance feels like for the first time in their life. A society where everyone gets to enjoy the harvest, not just get the scraps, but get to enjoy the harvest, and no one is abused or misused or exploited. Ruth doesn't assume that you don't do your fair share either. The Gospel of Ruth assumes that it is, that work is good, it's not a picture of angels playing harps and then like storks delivering bounty upon people. Work is at the heart of heaven and earth. There is no better feeling in life than to have good work to do and to share in doing it with good and trusted colleagues. Work is at the center of how human beings turn earth to heaven and bring heaven to earth, blending the gifts of God with the labor of human hands. Just imagine being able to work, knowing that your conditions of work would be fertile and all your labors would be fruitful. Isn't, it's an inspiring and energizing vision that Ruth creates for us. Wouldn't that be heaven and earth? And then finally, the third dimension of salvation. We have health and we have security, and then we have this relationship to what we eat, this, the soil in this story. We get this evocative picture. The the message here is that the wider relationships that make human habitation possible are not fundamentally conflictual. We, We can hear the echo of Isaiah, they shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is the biggest kind of philosophical claim in all of Ruth's story. It's the promise that when heaven and earth meet, there isn't war, but partnership. There isn't battle, but, but beauty, not contest for scarce resources, but an act of worship centered around sharing food with one another. I want you to watch a video um, now about, about what this might look like, what this kind of salvation might look like. Somebody turn the light off for me.
3: you're teaching about land mm-hmm. and food. Mm-hmm. And it is, what, what does that have to do with salvation? Uh, which one, land or food? Or both or? of those. That's kind of just a, like hippie. Yeah, thought. okay, well, I think for a lot of people, salvation means something like getting your soul off to heaven. And uh, that's just not how the Bible thinks about salvation. Salvation means healing, bodies being taken care of. And so when you look at Jesus in the Gospels, what he's doing is... He's touching people. He's making sure they've got food to eat. Uh, He's healing people. And that shows you that bodies really matter. And if bodies matter, you have to care about food because if we didn't eat, uh, we wouldn't live very long. And the fact of the matter is, is that the food system we've got right now is really destructive. It's destructive of our bodies because it's It's filling. It's development, brother. It's just natural process. No, it's not because what's happening is that we're feeding ourselves poison. And it's it's development for the companies that make a lot of money off all these poisons, but if I put some of your tissue or my tissue or anybody under you know, a microscope, we'll find all kinds of poisons there, you know? And how can you say you love people when you consign them to eating unhealthy food? Are you saying Taco Bell is not a gift from God? It's not, no. I mean, I, I, I don't eat at Taco Bell, so I don't know a lot about what's in their food, but so much of our industrial food our highly processed you know fast food culture it's really destructive of land it's destructive of the lives of animals agricultural workers i mean there's just abuse and injustice going on in all of it and you know we don't mind because it makes our food really cheap but uh, a lot of that cheap food is bad for us and uh, bad for other people and so if i i think it's just me but i think if christians to eat better, uh, we can do a lot to heal the bodies of each other. We can do a lot to heal the land. We can do a lot to heal our agricultural economies that are really hurting. And uh, I think that's part of what salvation is about. I mean, Jesus was in the food business. I don't see why church people shouldn't be in the food business either. Does it have to do with the American dream, though? Well, depending on what you mean by the American dream, right? I think you know the American dream, in its best, means something like the happiness of people, the ability for people to freely exercise their gifts and their talents. Yeah, and those are good things. But uh, you know, there's this saying, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Well, for us to live that kind of a life, a lot of people are not happy. And there's a lot of injustice. So just to bring it back to food again, for us to have a lot of the cheap food that we have, A lot of people got to be working in the fields in near-slave conditions, no worker benefits, no worker protections, and no salary that any American would ever accept. But it's better than what they'd have if they didn't, though, right? Well, I'm not so sure about that because, you know, one of the things that we ask these agricultural workers to do is use poisons that nobody else will use, right, that are very, very dangerous. And so these people are getting very sick. And sure, there's a lot of desperation. but if we had a lot of time we could talk about trade deals and how a lot of these trade deals are creating the conditions in which migrant workers have no options at home right we've gone and we've wrecked say the mexican agricultural economy right we destroyed their corn and by doing that you know we we dumped all of our cheap corn our highly subsidized cheap corn on the mexican market and suddenly we've got a society which is used to having you know, th- thousands of farmers doing a productive life growing corn. They can't grow corn anymore because everything they grow, they can get much cheaper. And so, we've created this massive immigration problem because we destroyed their economy, right? I don't think a lot of these people want to leave their homes, want to do work that's backbreaking and, you know, really unhealthy. That's not, that's not a dream for people, but when you're desperate, you got no other options, you do things that you otherwise wouldn't do. And I think we're fooling ourselves if we think that these migrant workers, they just can't wait to get into America so they can breathe all these toxins and say, yeah, I'm participating in the American dream. That's not the American dream. What, uh, what breaks your heart uh, apart and, and what breaks your heart open? Well, I mean, what's really, really sad for me is to see how hard we've made life for farmers. Uh, farming is is an an amazingly important and noble occupation for people and this is not a new thing this is historically the story everywhere uh, around the world that people who live in cities the people who depend upon farmers end up abusing farmers and uh, you know it's so unfortunate that these people can't make a living uh, because what they're doing is really important work it's God honoring work but the way we have set up economies now makes it so that it's almost impossible for these people uh, to do the kind of thing that they do. And that's, that's really upsetting for me. And so what I'm trying to do is, is help people understand that agriculture needs to be in the thinking and in the minds and in the planning and the actions of church people, even those who are living in suburbs and urban areas. Because if Christians truly care about God's world God's world includes the land. It includes the people who work the land. I mean, you can't read the Bible and not see that God cares about the land. And uh, as soon as you recognize that, that might become then a way for church people to change some of their policies so that uh, farmers can get a better deal.
1: So the wonderful thing about Ruth is that it exists in this space between um, heaven and earth. We as a church community are not just here to pack something to send to migrant workers. We're here to wrestle with this as it relates to our salvation. That's what we're about, right? As it relates to our salvation, our healing ourselves, how, how do we wrestle with, with the healing of the world? Um, and so that reminds me of what I told you at the beginning about one of the things that we're going to do as, um, as a church this summer we don't have migrant workers in Kingstown, right? Kingstown, our neighborhood, right outside our door. Um, we don't have we have we have we have some refugees. We surely do. Uh, we, but we're not right next to the farmland. Um, they're not right outside here. But we have a community around here of people who are hurting and in need and have their own. Um, addictions and crises and all of that, and so we as a church really, really want to begin listening to what people need in the community. And to do that, the best way we know how um, is to just be in the community. So our project this summer is what this is. This is what the early church did together. This is what the early church did together is they went and they just set up church and a home. Uh, they, they gathered some friends together and had a meal. They cooked out without a grill uh, and played games, whatever early church games are. I don't know. I have to look that up. And they got to know one another. They got to know one another. And we think that as a church, our biggest mistake is that we don't know our neighbors. We don't know them. We live right next door to them, and we don't know them. And so, um, so that's what I'm inviting you into. That's our way of be, hanging between heaven and earth, right? Believing that God can change relationships and form bonds, and we don't have to be telling them about Jesus for God to do that, right? We don't have to be preaching the gospel at them at some cookout to do that, but we can be, we can be blending heaven and earth, blending heaven and earth. Um, as the band comes forward, let us pray. God, you care about, um, about your world, about, about communities that are in need and are suffering, um, about places where our lives and how we live and how and how we um, enjoy the luxuries of, of, of being you know, suburbanites, uh, how they affect others. Uh, and God, I know you don't condemn us. I know that if we sense any kind of guilt within ourselves, that that's not of you. That's not the point. The point is not guilt. The point is healing and transformation, that we might find our own way to, to salvation. We may be on this path of salvation, this journey of salvation with all the world, that it might have something to do with our souls and their souls, with our bodies and their bodies, and that we're interconnected. God, help us see that today with our hands, with our hearts, with our heads as we're wrestling with this, if this is new to us. We join together in that prayer that you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, how would be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven.